this time just children are dismissed. So youth are going to stay um, in the congregation here. Hi, I'm Bree Thompson. If you're new here, I get to serve as pastor of youth and young adult ministries here at HBIC. It is my delight. Um, today we are continuing in our Got It Midnight series. Um, we're going to look at two key pieces from today's text. Our story is of the writing on the wall. I want to give a little bit of context, and then we'll go ahead and read the scripture. So this is the continuing in the time of the Babylonian um, reign, and Daniel is still around. He's older, possibly around 76 uh, at this time. And in the text, Belshazzar is called king, uh, according to historical documents, so he is a, um, a co-regent, so he's not the actual king. The king at the time um, is Nabonid Nabonidus, which that'll become relevant later. Um, but so King Belshazzar is kind of acting king in the setting of our story. So let's, uh, and actually they didn't even know, they couldn't even confirm that Belshazzar existed outside of the biblical text until about 1976 they found him listed um, in other historical documents to confirm that he was a person um, that we find in this story here. So we're going to look at Daniel chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can open and read along, or you can read along up here with us. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his, eye, his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be named the high, third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king brought from Judah? 
I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the God of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds his hand who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel parsin. Here is what these words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your powerful word and the ways that you speak to us through it. Lord, we ask that you open our eyes to the spaces we find ourselves in this story. Show us what you have for us today. Show us how to turn to you, Lord, in our own journeys and in our journeys communally. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a lot was happening in this story, and as I said before, Belshazzar was acting as king um, while the king of Babylon is actually out at war. So he is making intentional political moves while the king is away. Um, this type of banquet um, is, was often used to express uh, social rank and power. In Belshazzar's case, because this may have been not a common occurrence for him to have this opportunity, it was more to kind of prove um, his rank and his power. Commentators even speculate that Belshazzar intentionally planned to and then did take out the holy vessels. And so 
in a move to say, look how bold I am, look how audacious I am and venturesome, so much more than my predecessor, the mighty Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Belshazzar is saying, I will not anything sway me. I've heard these stories of some other god, um, etc. But that does not, that's not going to change um, my motives and where I'm sitting. Um, Belshazzar knew the God of Israel. He knew the stories. He knew what had happened in Nebuchadnezzar. But he was so enculturated, so immersed in his own ego, that even though he knows what God has done, he doesn't care. And he's going to choose his own way anyway. Um, and actually, all of the people there, we're talking thousands, they all also knew the stories of the God of Israel, um, what he had done. And together, they're doing this incredibly intentional, blasphemous act of drinking from the holy goblets and then praising the gods of silver and gold. Um, but then justice comes. Um, the time comes when political authority, wealth, power, and human wisdom could do nothing to solve the problem. And here in the story, the Lord has again exposed the ignorance of the world and the futility of human power to discover and explain the mind and will of God. In verse 6, we read, Belshazzar's face turns pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. And then at this point in the story, the queen mother comes in, um, possibly a grandmother, previous queen, and, and Daniel is older at this time also, but his reputation precedes him. He's probably retired, like I said, maybe 76-ish, but he's still doing that, which God has called him to um, in his retirement. Um, he has a great reputation in a very secular space. He was known for bringing light and understanding and wisdom into every situation. He was known for being able to explain all of these things, the mysteries, riddles, solve hard problems. Um, a side note to see in this is how was it that Daniel was able to be so righteous and faithful amidst that wicked nation? Um, something else we know about Daniel is he prayed three times a day, um, possibly and probably amidst other spiritual practices that he did um, to keep his faith in that tumultuous space. Um, back to our text, though, Daniel comes and he gives the meaning of the writing of the wall. He tells Belshazzar, today is the day of your demise. You've been haughty. You've been found wanting, and Babylon's reign is over. And then everything comes to pass that very day. Justice came for Babylon. Like King Belshazzar and his guests, many people in our world today are unmindful of the lessons of the past, unintelligent when it comes to interpreting the present, and totally unprepared for the consequences that lie in the future. Um, the world has always had its great cities, its mighty empires, its powerful dictators, but the Most High God still reigns in heaven and on earth and accomplishes his purposes. There is no nation, leader, or individual citizen that can resist our Almighty God in the long run and win the battle. If there were ever were a man proud of his achievements and fast in self-confidence, it was Belshazzar, but it was a false confidence, and his downfall fall and that of Babylon isn't unlike what will happen to any nation um, that reigns and rules in power. A question for us today is, can we connect with this group of people who are intentionally worshiping their own might, their own power, and a people intentionally turning their back on God? Um, it is important to be aware of the ways that America looks like Babylon, the ways we choose to worship our own power, our definitions of good, our independence, 
um, from individuals doing good to the larger whole of the country that passes laws in striking contrast to God, um, what he has said, and making moves in contrast to our righteousness of our God. Um, but I want to take our thoughts today about that individualism and shift it and look a little bit at our church body. Um, one of the keys, I believe, that draws us away from God's vision for a church community is our focus on individualism. We want to think about ways that the church can put the brakes on the slippery slope of, an, of being individualistic. Um, there are lots of things that have impacted why church is going in that direction in some ways. COVID has coaxed a lot of people further along in their individual pursuit of their faith. Um, you know, they found a way to practice their faith at home and maybe found satisfaction in their staying there and are losing community. Um, some people over time have turned their faith to be an individualistic one, maybe because they felt they needed to deconstruct their faith, maybe they've been hurt by the church. Um, the last recent history of church, of Western church, also has had a heavy focus on the personal aspect of our faith, our devotions, our individual growth, our quiet time, what's God doing in your life, how do you feel God is present, and these pieces are all very good and very important but our faith can't be just that. Um, and even say our, I'll even say that our individual faith shouldn't be the primary emphasis of our spiritual journeys. Um, individualists is not who we are as Christians. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And we are invited to partake in the body of Christ together. We are to live out who Christ is, and in his call together as the bride of Christ. Um, we were never meant to live out our faith individually. We've been given community from the beginning. God has blessed, God has ministered. The first church was established all in the framework of community. So how can we as a body of Christ press more into what that looks like as living our faith out together in community and not it simply being about our own individualistic journeys. Um, I think a starting point is a posture shift. Church isn't supposed to be our quick touch base to help us focus as we then individually live out our faith as the week goes on. What if our focus wasn't primarily on us as individuals, how the church impacts us, how it fits us as an individual, but what if our focus was on the church? And out of the church is the conviction that Christian life prim primarily flows from the church to persons. And what if we use church as a verb? Did we church today? Are we churching together? Everything we have learned and know in life, in our journeys, in our faith journeys, has come from our contacts with others, interactions with others, um, conversations, all of our social settings, that's where we make meaning is through those interactions with others and spirituality and the Christian life cannot be understood as private and inward but as nested within a body of believers. So let's think about our, our faith, the faith aspect of our, our faith specifically. And most of us can probably think of times in life in our journeys where we have felt very solid in our belief and our faith. 
And then other times, not so much um, because of a journey we're on, maybe something we've, we've come upon um, that's a bit of a sticking point. Um, what if the solidity of that faith, that belief, didn't land entirely on us as individuals, but on us as a communal body? What if those dry times in our faith, those times that we're feeling stuck, those times that it just doesn't feel like God is there for us as individuals, what if we leaned into the body to have faith for us? In their book, Enhancing Christian Life, Brad Strawn and Warren Brown tell the story of a woman named Bethany and her taking communion at her church. Bethany's brother, Josh, had a family, and Josh had been struggling with a meth addiction. Bethany was wrestling with questions like, why isn't my brother better? Will he ever be? Bethany was also quite certain that in her prayers for Josh, she was just entertaining foolish hopes that would never come to be. Um, as she approached the communion table one day, she reflects on her story. Um, she prayed as she was going up, God, I go in doubt, but I go. Now, Jan was a member at her church who had been one of the people that Bethany had first met and first gotten to know at the church, and Jan had been praying for Bethany and her brother Josh and the family for a while. Jan always asked Bethany how Josh and the family were doing. So here's Bethany's account of taking communion that day. She says, I first approached Warren to take the bread, the body of Christ broken for you, he said. I proceeded to dip the bread into the cup of juice in Jan's hand. The blood of Christ shed for you, she whispered. Thanks be to God, I replied. And for Josh and his family, she continued. The blood of Christ shed for you and for Josh and his family. I was struck. While Jan frequently asked about my brother and had served me communion on other occasions, she had never said those words while serving me, and I had never approached the communion table thinking more about my brother. For the first time in months, I let myself hope again. Jan's words gave me the courage to believe that my brother was not forgotten, that he was not alone, that maybe he would live and not die, and that maybe his life wouldn't feel so much like death. How can we be doing church together to be able to be the body well, to carry each other in this time? And I think in a lot of spaces it's done really well. Here at HBIC we've got some great things going on also. We share life together in lots of ways. We worship together, praise God together, we pray together, read the Bible together. We have table fellowship. We work and serve together. Um, lots of beautiful things. I think to be that body that's sharing the faith and walking together does require a bit more than four hours a week, probably. Um, so what are the ways to be connecting and sharing life more? A hint towards being in more of this intentional life together, I think, is the model that Jesus shows us. Um, Jesus, in his life and ministry, he had an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, that were closest to him. His confidants, his encouragers, that set of people to share everything with, depend on, having space to make one another sharper. Um, in Jesus' next circle, there was a group of 12, the disciples. They spent a lot of time together. Jesus was teaching them regularly, explaining things to them thoroughly. Jesus' ministry to and connection 
with the 12 was very intimate and consistent. And then beyond that group, Jesus' circles expanded, and he was able to connect with and interact to more um, on different levels. And who are the three that you are doing Christian life with in that most intimate way? Who are your 12? You've got lots of intentional walking in, growing together, lots of shared life with. And who are you connected with outside of that? Who are your larger circles to be able to do life in Christ together with? I think we know a lot of answers of how to do this um, well. We know lots of spaces we are doing it well. Um, And I think that I bet a lot of us now are thinking of beautiful ways that we can even expand it more to walk fully as a body of believers together, holding one another, holding our faith together, and working together to bring God's kingdom here on earth. Back to the story of Bethany. Later that week, she met with her pastor for coffee, and she shared the event with him, and he reflected and said, I don't think there's anything magical about it. Lots of time you don't believe this stuff, but you're doing this with a body, and they believe for you. An individualistic spirituality is not going to get an addict far, it seems to me. But a communal spirituality is able to hear, I don't believe this crap, and yet respond, I know, but I do, and I believe this for you. I'd like to shift gears now and look back at our scripture passage. Um, As I said, some commentators think that Belshazzar's bringing out the holy goblets was an intentional move. It was an intentional political move. Um, You know, they've got lots of reasons for that. Um, Other texts from the time and knowing about the politics of the time. Um, So, you know, there's a good chance that's right. We can't know for sure, but I'm going to go to my initial read of the scripture and my reaction outside of all of that. Um, So when I read the part of what Belshazzar does, so after this time, this huge party, they're all drinking, he's drinking, he's drinking in front of them, um, and then he calls for these chalices to be brought out. And so my reflection on that is, look where he went when he was drunk. So he's got all these guests, he's drinking wine with them, and he's really feeling with the wine. They've been partying for a while. Maybe it's even midnight at this point and the dirt comes out. Maybe on the surface prior to this event, Belshazzar did the respectful acknowledgement of all the gods. If you remember, you know, they clumped a lot of gods together, and so he maybe said on the surface, yes, I'll also honor the God of Israel amongst the others. I'm not going to disrespect him in our network of gods. But when it turned midnight, when the alcohol had had his way, its way with Belshazzar, the truth of his heart, came out and he is saying or at least trying to claim your stories about this God of the Israelites are nonsense I'm powerful I'm stronger than this God and I will attain victory with my might so a question I had is was this all bubbling under the surface before it and then when he had gotten to his midnight what he really thought came out so for us in reflecting on it You know, I think on what comes out of me, what comes out of us when we're at our worst, maybe at the end of a really, or through the midst of a really, really difficult journey, or maybe even just in the stress of a normal day, what is coming out Um, when we're feeling stress, when we're feeling anxious, maybe fearful, Um, maybe in those times we don't 
outright. Maybe we're not turning to blaspheme God. Um, maybe we don't totally lose our faith. But a reflection of where our hearts are is seeing what comes to, what, what comes out in those difficult hours, and what do we turn to? What do we turn to for our break, our letting out, um, uh, our release of those things? So in those times, do we have a bad attitude towards life, towards God? Are we bitter? And also, when we get a space for a respite, do, what do we turn to? Do we turn to a substance of some sort? And maybe it's not a substance per se, but something that's numbing. Maybe a screen, social media feed, maybe food, maybe an unhealthy sexual outlet, maybe just mindless news information, maybe just sports news, something numbing to not, to escape what is real. Um, what are we turning to? Are we ever able in those difficult times to turn to prayer and to look to the word for answers? Let's imagine a day that we're feeling, you're feeling particularly whatever type of way that strikes you most. Maybe it's anxious, maybe angry. A normal type of day, nothing outstanding, but you're feeling overwhelming, overwhelmed and stuck. So in that space, are you able to turn to God? In prayer, in reflection, in silence, are you able to turn to a trusted friend that you have a healthy relationship with to talk it through? Um, or do we find ourselves turning more to a numbing behavior? If your answer is, well, that numbing behavior is pretty consistent for me, but I don't know how to change that pattern. You know, I'd like to do more of those other healthy type outlets, but my pattern is pretty set and I don't know how to change that. Um, let's, let's talk about that. Our brains follow patterns and make connections. So let's say every time that I feel extra stressed out, let's say social media is what I do. To numb it, I'm not going to think about it. It feels like a little bit of an outlet. I get to turn my brain off potentially, consume some eye candy, maybe get dopamine releases because someone liked my post. Now, if this is always what I do when I feel stress, my brain makes the connection that this is what I should do. This is how I rest. This is how I de-stress, is by turning to this. And the reason it's so hard to change our patterns is because our brains become conditioned. Rest equals screen time, or whatever it is for you, your de-stress equals that outlet. So we're conditioned, our brain becomes conditioned. So that taking our time of our, ourselves or a moment of frustration, um, we create the patterns. And it's really hard to change those patterns. So. I encourage us, though, to press into, to ask God, and to trust him to help recondition us. Let's invite him in to those spaces and help us change those patterns. So we need to choose to give him space to work with. Um, maybe we'll choose to fast from some of our regular tendencies. Pick a vice that's consistent for you and choose to not do it. And ask God for the strength to do that. Growth in life does not come easily. The things that we really want in life and prayerfully, a deeper walk with the Lord, a deeper walk in community with the Lord, those things come with sacrifice. So if we choose to fast from a regular avoidance behavior and choose not to replace them with another avoidance behavior, that's key, um, we can allow space 
to let God recreate our patterns. So if you were to try this, you initially may just kind of feel stuck and say, I don't even know what to do with the other space. Um, and, and maybe that's where you need to just sit and wait and see what God will do. Um, and then eventually, maybe God's going to prompt your heart to something beautiful, a beautiful activity, maybe something restorative, maybe something connecting, something fulfilling. Maybe we'll figure out how we can depend on the body in our hour of need, even just a stressful day, a full day. Maybe we've got doubts we're wrestling with. How can we share that space instead of turning to a numbing behavior? Another question towards where we are in our midnights is what are the postures of our hearts at that time? And that's, that becomes exposed as well. Um, and again, even, even just at the end of a very full day. Sometimes that binge type behavior at our ends, uh, we end up feeling like I have worked so hard, I deserve this break, whatever it looks like. Um, maybe that's our attitude. And maybe we're doing that well and staying within boundaries, but we also want to remember that all good things come from above. It's great that you're working hard, very good, and, but hopefully it's to honor our savior. Um, we wanna do a motivation check with that attitude. Um, are we working hard to prove others wrong, to earn the things, to prove something to ourselves? Um, we want to make sure the foundation of our hope and our identity is coming from the right places. Can our me times at the end of a day or deep in the difficult journey be framed in humility and gratitude for our provider? And thankfully, God tells us we get to have times of festival our celebration or and celebration. Let's make sure that he is the focused, not just say, whoo, I made it. We finally, I get to kick my feet up. This is about me type attitude. Um, we don't want to land at a we deserve this attitude when we get to times of festival. It's about God's love for us, the good he wants for us, and the good he has for us. It's a beautiful thing to be able to be in that space of celebration and allow that space Another note towards where we land in times of midnight or again, just in, in a stressful, anxious time. Um, if we find ourselves really stuck and not able to make many, any move at all, um, that might be a yellow flag to do a mental health check. So what are the things in you that you need to be tending to? Um, is there an important area of healing that you need to intentionally press into to make space to really dig in and see what's happening. Are you taking care of yourself in general? Do you have a balance to be able to be in a good space? Are you saying no where you need to? Um, and if you find yourself really, really feeling stuck and not being able to make move in these places, um, there might be a deep mental health concern that needs tended to. Um, some of the things that could possibly be is maybe past relationship hurts that you need to dig into and work through a bit more maybe work towards reconciling. Maybe you have invisible losses that you haven't mourned, a freedom or an independence that you used to have, an ability you used to have and don't have anymore. Do we need to further heal from a breakup, from a divorce? Do we need to look back and do more work there? Maybe is there a toxic situation that you need to get out of, or maybe you have gotten out of and you need to heal from. 
Another important question is, do you have a childhood trauma that you've never addressed, you've never worked through? Something I read recently talked about um, some of us may not have like a real big T, a big trauma in our life, really like a, hey, this is the reason I'm struggling. You can put a finger on it. But a lot of us may have a whole bunch of little T's, little traumas. And according to psychology, all those little traumas add up to big impact. Um, they still can make a big difference in where we are sitting and in our health. Another thing about when you're thinking about your journey and trauma is to not compare yourself to others. I know a lot of times we may go, well, I know this person's story and everything they went through, and that's so, so challenging. What I've gone through is not really that big of a deal. I just need to push on. Um, and that's not a thing. Trauma is not something to compare to someone else. All of our traumas are relevant and impactful. So it is important to look at those things um, to see, you know, maybe you've gone through a natural journey of healing, but maybe not. So look back at that and see, um, is that something that's still um, impacting you? So maybe, maybe one of these things kind of struck a chord and you need to intentionally do something towards it. Maybe you need a counselor. Maybe find a book that's on a specific topic. You're like, I need healing in that. Um, maybe you're going to reach out to a, a friend who's gone through something similar and ask them to help you walk through um, what you're doing, what you're trying to, to address and work through. Dr. Tima Bryant has a book called Homecoming, Overcoming Fear and Trauma to Reclaim Your Whole Authentic Self. In her book, she identifies signs that of things like, hey, here's a sign that you need to go back and look at this towards healing, and she lots she offers lots of guidance as to what that can look like. Um, if some of this sounds like it's striking something for you, maybe her book is a good starting point to try to hone in on um, your areas. It is a reflection of our health, our mental health, our spiritual health, when we're able to fully turn to the Lord in our times of difficulty. When we're able to turn to the Lord at the end of a hard day, a full day, or even just in stressful moments. And it's a reflection of our health as a body of believers when we can turn to one another in our midnights. We can press into one another as we turn together to our loving Savior, our provider, our wonderful counselor. It's in a place of health, of good health, that we're able to do that well. Let's ask God for ways to move towards these places of health. Um, to be able to be fully relying on him, giving him all of our spaces and giving one another shared space as we journey together. Um, at this time, Pastor Hannah are going to come up and lead us in our final song, Withholding Nothing. I invite you to consider the things that maybe we're holding on to, maybe we didn't even know who we were holding on to. And we want to ask God to move to give us the strength and clarity to give it to him, to give it to one another, um, and to learn more how to walk together towards our Savior. Let's join in song. Um, also, at this time, any pastors, if you'll come up to the front, and we welcome anyone to come up for prayer. If you would like prayer, we would love to pray for you.
self-checks to find ourselves when we find ourselves in difficult moments let's take those spaces and give them to the lord for a deeper walk with him and join together in community let us pray jesus we thank you for giving us a body that we together get to be your bride we thank you for the beautiful ways we're already doing life together in growth together in faith together and we ask that you show us more ways to be your body together Lord, we ask that you help us to turn our hearts to you in all times. Change our hearts. Help us to just be open to you, your movements, that we may cling to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.